Hello, and welcome to episode three, season one of the Caucasity Counselor podcast. In this session, we're going to explore the films Bucktown and Coffee, because the topics I have lined up just might surprise you. I know I was taking my sweet time, it seems like, but now that I've gotten all of my priorities out of the way... I am now here to have the race talk with you. We're going to discuss massage noir as a theme in both movies and references from the holiday special, of course. Confronting friends and relatives or even yourselves about racism happening in real time is a practice. So there will be a few L's or losses but also a few L's referencing The Quaking of America, which is a book that we will discuss later on in this episode. Finally, I want to discuss fascism because my email has been active with hate-filled messages and there's been some confusion. Just because you don't like something that doesn't make it fascist or Marxist, and I've been accused of both. In both situations, I was talking about race and racism, so this scenario is very telling. It's because of these interactions that I'm committed to hosting a podcast that centers unlearning these racial biases. Now, Let's talk about what's going down in Bucktown. Duke Johnson, played by Fred Williamson, arrives in Bucktown to arrange his brother's funeral. Duke inherits his brother's nightclub and is convinced under false pretenses to open the nightclub, which is where we see law enforcement doing the racketeering. At the beginning of this season, there were three important terms that describe the power dynamic of race, class, and gender. So let's explore those. Habitus includes a person's internalized awareness of his or her status, as well as the status of others. Field is the specific social context the person is in. We're talking about the workplace or school or city hall and capital, the social value people hold in a particular field, how they perceive themselves and are perceived by others in terms of their power or status. In Bucktown, sex work seems to be big business, so the most at-risk demographic are women. There was a scene where we see a cop getting violent with a sex worker who was a black woman, It was a graphic scene. It was a graphic scene where this cop was going to throw this woman over the banister because that's how he got his rocks off, quote unquote, which is terrifying. Art imitates life and the treatment of sex workers have not changed. The violence 
against black women on film, on top of that, desensitizes the viewer of the reality that black women face. When Duke called in the black cavalry to get rid of the racist cops, Aretha was still in danger. Aretha is played by Pam Greer, and what makes her character stand out is the fact that she faced racketeering from the white cops and the threat of sexual assault from one of the members of the Black Calvary. She wasn't a sex worker by any means, but there were several moments where sexual advances were made toward her so casually. In these movies, Black women are casted as the hottie, the hooker, or the hero. And Aretha is the hot leading lady that gets with the hero. Let's look at the social capital of Aretha versus the madam of the brothel that pays off the cops. Aretha was married to Duke's brother, and while he was alive, he was a business owner. Her husband owned a nightclub that was the place to be for tourism revenue, and the white cops took all that away. When she sees that Duke can handle himself after the club reopens, she gets with him. Aretha's role as the leading lady has a social capital that is dependent upon the man she aligns herself with. Within the patriarchy, there is little to no upward mobility for women outside of gendered roles, such as secretary, waitress, or sex worker. The madam of the brothel maintains white racial innocence in both scenarios. She's extorted by law enforcement, but doesn't experience the same level of violence because Johns pay top dollar for white sex workers. Circling back to the black sex worker that was about to get thrown down the stairs by the cop, her traumatic experience is least likely to be reported if this wasn't a movie. According to the Minnesota Journal of Law and Inequality, no humans involved was the unofficial term used by members of LAPD to describe the murders of people of color and those in other communities deemed non-human. Sex work falls right under that umbrella term, so if a white sex worker reports a crime, their abuser gets a longer sentence compared to Black, Indigenous, sex workers of color. If you recall from the holiday special of this podcast, executing the race talk with friends and relatives was the main topic. And I'm curious how that went for my listeners out there. This is the current race talk where we're discussing the behaviors of whiteness and a system built on those principles. Let me know in the comment section or email me through the website about your experience with addressing your own biases on your racial healing journey. Then tell me the details of how the holidays went with family. Now let's switch gears and talk about the film Coffee because Pam Greer plays the hero instead of the hottie. Coffee is a hot nurse by day and does vigilante justice by night disguised as a prostitute. The man that she was supposed to trust turns out to be a jive turncoat who makes deals with non-black drug suppliers. Booker Bradshaw plays a crooked politician named Howard Brunswick, who is just as two-faced as they come. He takes kickbacks from these drug smugglers and destroys the communities that he's siphoning votes from. 
So when we discuss agents of white supremacy who are non-white, this fictional character is an example of that. Both films demonstrate the intersectionality of racism and patriarchy through structural violence and the lack of upward mobility for black women. The Lady Panther herself, Elaine Brown, went through massage noir perpetuated by her fellow Panthers and the violence from law enforcement. These movies reflect a small dose of reality of what black liberation is all about. Sounds like a broken record, I know, but what's the first thing that pops into mind when you think of the Black Panthers? If you were around during the 60s, in the 70s, what was your perception compared to what was taught in schools? Even if it's something your parents said in passing, please share your thoughts in the comment section or email me. Now here's what Elaine had to say about the revolution. A woman in the black power movement was considered at best irrelevant. A woman asserting herself was a pariah. A woman attempting the role of leadership was, to my proud black brothers, making an alliance with the counter-revolutionary, man-hating, lesbian, feminist white bitches. It was a violation of some black power principle that was left undefined. If a black woman assumed a role of leadership, she was said to be eroding black manhood, to be hindering the progress of the black race. She was an enemy of black people. Let's circle back to the movie Bucktown with Roy and his men assuming power. Duke thought that they were going to take out the trash and leave town, but Roy wanted the same action those white cops were getting. If you've ever read Animal Farm, then you'll notice in this scenario that the oppressed became the oppressors. And, uh, Circling back to the quote from Elaine Brown, we're talking about Massage Noir and how um, a black man who is capable of experiencing racism still benefits from patriarchy. And that was heavily discussed in the 70s, but that's something we're not talking about as much as we need to. This is something that uh, Black women have been talking about, other women of color, I'm sure, but I've noticed in my own personal experience when I talk to uh, Black men uh, recently that, yes, you are capable of perpetuating massage noir and I can't even get to the I can't even get to the part where there are cases where black women, us, we perpetuate massage noir as well. But that's, um, but then they're just so focused on how dare you ignore my struggle and call me out on my BS, essentially, uh, of course, I'm talking about, of course, I'm talking about, uh, of course, I'm talking about black men that idolize Kevin Samuels or um, other trailblazers of woman hating. So that's the, that's the reason why I chose 
that quote from Elaine Brown because I will be focusing more on uh, my own intersectionality of being a black woman, but then also um, in future episodes, I will also be discussing the notable lesbian warrior herself, Audre Lorde, because with everything that happened with Meg DeStallion to what happened with Brittany Griner and Nataki Garrett and so many more, I'm definitely going to be focusing on all of my identities as we progress in the show. Now back to the movie. It didn't matter that the people Roy and his men were extorting were the same race as them. All Roy, TJ, and Hambone cared about was the money. This symbolizes Black militancy within the white imagination because of how the Black Panthers were perceived in the 70s. I've heard the name Black KKK when some white people from that era described the Black Panthers, but this is because of the Panthers protecting their communities from racist cops. Now, quite a few topics have been discussed during the session, so now let's slow down a little bit and talk about the L's of anti-racism. Leaps of integrity, learnings, and legacy. In the book, The Quaking of America, a leap of integrity refers to leaping into the unpredictable and unknown future while acting from the best parts of yourself or step backward into dirty pain. Learnings are just that. On your anti-racism practice and healing journey, you will learn new things that you wouldn't have otherwise encountered. The more you heal from racialized trauma, the greater the ripple effect will be, which is what we mean by legacy. And I also mean the same thing for um, men of color, black men especially, that are having difficulty combating their internalized misogyny because this this is where we have the struggle within transformative movements. Now, during this session, I've asked you all to share your experience from over the holidays or talk about the microaggressions you remember growing up because that's what we're unpacking. These harmful social norms are passed down. So to combat that, active anti-racism work is necessary. Speaking of active, my emails have had this common trend of people accusing this podcast of preaching division through fascist rhetoric or Marxists quote-unquote hate speech. This absolutely reflects the climate of where I live simply because I talk about anti-racism. There are early warning signs of fascism and this podcast is not a sign of controlled mass media or nor do I have a disdain for human rights. So you know, it's, it's quite the opposite, actually. In fact, during past many sessions, the topics of conversation have been about 
how the houseless are treated in my community and the classism that cops enforce. Nazi Germany learned from American racism through the mass genocides of the indigenous and the enslavement of black people. How both groups are systemically outcasted generations after the fact is what Hitler studied. So if my listeners are looking for modern day examples of disdain for human rights, then look no further than how the houseless are viewed and systemically disenfranchised in Medford, Oregon. When reporter April Ehrlich tried to gather evidence of Medford police breaking up the homeless encampment in Hawthorne Park after the fires, she was arrested in the process and later she sued Medford and Jackson County officials. Now this is a blatant example of the city of Medford participating in two forms of fascist behavior. This past election year was a pivotal moment in Oregon history because of Measure 112, 114, and the race for governor. The District 3 Senate race is on a smaller scale, but still noteworthy because of two contenders. Current Mayor Randy Sparacino and incumbent State Senator Jeff Golden. During the election, my mailbox was bombarded with vote for Randy ads and what caught my attention was who endorsed him. As expected, the Sheriffs of Oregon Political Action Committee, Oregon State Police Officers Association, and the Oregon Chiefs of Police endorsed him for the state Senate position. The surprising part was the fact that Oregonians for Affordable Housing endorsed this ex-police chief who enforces classic city ordinances that puts the houseless further at risk. At the height of the election, I couldn't drive three feet without seeing vote for Randy, vote no on 114, and pro-state of Jefferson banners grouped together. Quick side note about the history behind the state of Jefferson. A campaign for secession dating back to the 1850s. The 2013 campaign for secession had conservative Tea Party rhetoric, and now, 10 years later, we have the Greater Idaho Movement that aims to relocate several conservative eastern Oregon counties into Idaho. Last summer, I recall a gay pride event happening in Coeur d'Alene and a hate group called Patriot Front was also in attendance. Idaho has an identical white supremacist history that Oregon has, in addition to one hate group in common, surprise, surprise, Patriot Front. What caught my attention about what happened at that Pride event was a Patriot Front member named Lawrence Alexander Norman, who's from Prospect, Oregon, and that's right in the backyard of Southern Oregon. Despite the ad campaign for disguising the Pacific Northwest as this progressive paradise, Oregon still has 10 hate groups and Idaho has six. I know I've said previously that Hitler copied from American racism to accomplish what he did with a fascist regime, and that hasn't changed. In American curriculum, I've noticed that marginalized groups outside of the Jewish community are not discussed as topics as thoroughly as they should in reference to who fell victim to those death camps and gas chambers. Those Nazis took Romani people, black people, gay people, and the homeless especially. When I say that Oregon participates in at least two forms of fascist behavior, I'm actually underselling it. 
This system is global, but I can't explain it all in one setting. During the District 3 Senate race, I learned something new about both candidates. On the outside looking in, it looks like a campy Hollywood movie about the triumph of good versus evil through democracy. Randy Sparacino, the corrupt Keebler elf, challenging District 3's cool, hip, liberal Uncle Jeff Golden. I was curious to see the outcome of a debate between two seemingly different candidates, but was instantly disappointed. Back in early October, Sparacino and Golden were supposed to meet in person before the general election for a televised debate, and Sparacino withdrew. Golden even said that he reached out to Sparacino's team about the event at SOU and the scheduled forum at the Jackson County Library, but they haven't heard a word back. Sparacino only mentioned in a press release that he was looking forward to the debate on the 17th of October. Because I was already aware of what Mayor Sparacino's views were on poverty, the prison system, and critical race theory, I leaned toward Golden in the beginning. He is one of the most vocal politicians in Oregon on campaign contribution limits because it waters down legislation, and he told Jefferson Public Radio that he's donating every dollar he's received from political action committees to nonprofit groups. On paper, that sounds like a wholesome alternative to the anti-abortion authoritarian, but that's the trademark of neoliberalism. It requires an active state to dismantle social welfare programs, deregulate labor and trade, and of course, protect the wealth and assets of the ruling class. Simply mentioning the word nonprofit doesn't mean that all of our social issues have been solved. And life within the nonprofit sector requires constant negotiation of how this system hinders and enables transformative work. An excellent example of nonprofits hindering change is Rogue Retreat and the moral compass of its former director, Pastor Chad McComas. If you need a recap of what happened, please refer to the mini session titled Rogue Retreat. As for our liberal hip Uncle Senator Golden, Way back in 2021, he secured a million dollars to purchase a permanent location for the urban campground. The site was intended to reduce the amount of houseless people on the Bear Creek Park Greenway. But like the network of shelters here in Southern Oregon, they partner with law enforcement and reinforce structural violence. Members from a Facebook group called the Greenway Recovery Project have harmful views of the houseless population and purposefully put themselves in positions of power within the network of shelters here in Southern Oregon. Senator Golden didn't run on a heavy law and order campaign, but the enforcers of the state are vital to neoliberalism. Black Alliance Social Empowerment, or BASE for short, has had 501c3 status for some time now. And this past election cycle, the news coverage for the Why We Can't Wait video in tandem with the third annual Juneteenth featuring Mayor Sparacino looking as tolerant as possible for the votes is what I'm talking about. BASE does very well in educating the community through cultural events and providing books that promote diversity, but 
white people in the Rogue Valley still associated this organization with Marxism. This well-intentioned organization assimilated into the status quo of this oppressive system while simultaneously being the token of its reform. So as much as I would love to explore social issues through a Marxist lens, there's too much ignorance on the topic of fascism. A huge concern for Oregonians is the housing crisis and how Governor Kotek intends to respond. As I said previously, the city of Medford is participating in two forms of fascist behavior in its response and treatment of the houseless, but let's broaden the spectrum and examine the state of Oregon. A study released from security.org found that Oregon's homeless rate has risen by 14% since 2014, so we're ranked fourth nationally for homelessness. Faith-based organizations and people with harmful beliefs toward the houseless operate the shelters here. In 2019, studies showed that the number of homeless kids increased, especially in the Medford School District. A reporter asked a counselor from Hearts with a Mission a youth shelter why out of 1,251 kids on the street, how come only 60 are listed at the shelter? The counselor said, since they're not in a place with tremendous crime issues, they think they can live on their own. And young people want that freedom to be able to do what they want to do. These are the beliefs that activists are rallying against while simultaneously educating the public on the homophobia and transphobia that exists within our safety nets. Not to mention there's an age limit on a lot of the shelters out here. So that's another reason why um, there's a decrease or a disconnect between how many kids are in shelters versus how many adults. It's the age restrictions, honestly. Speaking of which, uh, when talking about our safety nets that are not safe, let's look at Kotec's budget plan. 75% of the budget proposal is going toward behavioral health, homelessness, and education. Senate Republicans praised the governor for preserving the kicker refund and not calling for tax increases for the voters um, and to start meeting the goal of building 36,000 new homes a year, Kotex proposing a new state office and spending $770 million on bonds to build more low-income housing and the homelessness budget she's asking the state for is $130 million for 600 shelter beds to keep 9,000 families housed and um, help 1,200 homeless people find shelter. Kotex State of Emergency applies to Central Oregon, Lane, Jackson, Marion, and Polk counties because homelessness increased by more than 50% between 2017 and 2022. I want to be hopeful about how basic human rights are addressed, especially since Kotex budget includes $47 million for mobile crisis teams like the Cahoots program, but police budgets are grossly overfunded in comparison. 
Here in Jackson County, the cop-led livability team is responsible for registering houseless individuals into the local shelters that have waiting lists a mile long. The enforcers of the state should never have power over our most vulnerable groups, but this is housing being treated as a commodity. Within this oppressive system, the nonprofit industrial complex is also complicit within the establishment it claims to be fighting against. Maybe if I vote for the candidate that makes me feel comfortable, start a nonprofit to radicalize my community, or protest in the streets, then things will drastically change. These reactionary thoughts and actions are very common but have a tendency to burn hot and fizzle out. What truly counts is the endurance necessary for justice and equity, which also requires combating liberalism. When I say combat liberalism, I'm referring to combating complicity. Neoconservatives and neoliberals are similar in that they both seek to cut social welfare programs while insisting it will enhance the lives of the people it abandons. Social service nonprofits, now more than ever, take responsibility for people in the throes of abandonment rather than responsibility for persons progressing toward full incorporation into society. All too often do social justice movements get co-opted by the ruling class and all of these news stories about performative activism take center stage. These performances entertain the unsuspecting public, and have them convinced that there's nothing going on behind the curtain. Long-time, kind-hearted, homeless man, downtown Dan, gets a permanent home, makes local news as grassroots activists organize yet another vigil for the houseless that died on the street this past year. Or making the public believe that our local law enforcement are woke because the racial equity liaison program is run by a black-led nonprofit as the Robert Keegan trial draws near. The 1970s wasn't just an era of black exploitation films, but a time where the nonprofit industry flourished in response to the social justice movements going on at the time. Your friends and relatives may be out there trying to make a difference through providing social services to the community, but with every grant proposal, traditional policy, and best practices model, they contribute to the agenda of the ruling class. But all hope is not lost because the services that are bringing much needed resources to exploited groups are valid and there's a way to mobilize through consciousness raising. Refer back to the L's of anti-racism. Learn, leap of integrity, and legacy. Because... As we unlearn what's been normalized, we begin to think outside of the current system for solutions to societal pitfalls. Let's start with universal income without the condition of employment and taking housing out of the marketplace. To the average American, what I just said sounds insane, but better developed countries already have these things. What if Bucktown had harm reduction services and community-based resources so that the sex workers can safely be their own bosses? Heavily criminalizing drug use and sex work would be non-existent, 
Therefore, Bucktown would have no need to participate in the prison industrial complex centered around profit and wage slavery. Without a prison system based in ownership of private property, how do we interpret law and crime? The state of Oregon has a shortage of public defenders in a society based on intentional poverty. So I think we are way overdue for conversations about the label society places on people with criminal histories that restrict their access to housing and employment. In the 1970s, there goes that golden year again. The topic of crime was called into question by criminologists, which opened doubt to the very scope of the field, according to a scholar by the name of David F. Greenberg. He also mentioned that Herman and Julia Schwedinger argued that to restrict research to violations of state-made law is to accept the definitions of harm and wrongfulness that the state asserts, and they urged their co-workers, other criminologists, to redefine crime as a violation of human rights. A federal appeals court ruled that the city of Grants Pass, here in Oregon, violated the Constitution with their anti-homeless ordinances last year. It's considered cruel and unusual punishment under the Eighth Amendment through those ordinances designed to prevent the homeless from sleeping in public places when there's nowhere in the city for them to go. Grants Pass was called out through the courts, but the rest of the state is doing the same thing. Law enforcement upheld those unconstitutional ordinances. The same state-sanctioned gang that has documented ties to right-wing extremist groups. In 1971, the American Friends Service Committee's Working Party stated that actions that clearly ought to be labeled criminal because they bring the greatest harm to the greatest number are in fact accomplished officially by agencies of the government. The most at risk are queer persons of color, but the state of Oregon wants badged enforcers to screen Oregonians as part of the permit to purchase program and using the firearms instant check system as the criteria. Trans and gay gun owners in the state of Oregon have every right to be fearful about measure 114 as well as yours truly. Our basic human rights, as well as our right to protect ourselves, is on the chopping block, and we ran out of public defenders to defend the public. My concern is the shared outrage of Oregonians outside the Portland area because conservatives and marginalized groups have different reasons for opposing Measure 114 to begin with. Gunrunner Arms of Junction City, Oregon shut down because the owners wrote an online statement saying that Measure 114 was instrumental to the communist takeover of the state of Oregon. The statement on their website had so many spelling errors, it's sad. Hopefully my listeners are beginning to understand how propagandized Oregon voters are And I'm sure this right-wing talking point is a widely held belief nationwide.
Based on the heat of responses from right-wing extremist groups in reference to the Black Lives Matter movement locally, I speculate that hate crimes will escalate because they associate Measure 114 with communism. Anyone politically to the left of Red Scare McCarthyism from the 50s era could be a target. The procedures from the firearms instant check system have been in place since 1996. And the tough on crime legislation track record runs from 1980 to 2000. So I'm already skeptical about how this will impact BIPOC groups. Now add measure 112 narrowly passing when it should have been a no brainer to begin with to the mix. Personally, I think the removal of slavery as a punishment is purely cosmetic. A little over 20 years ago, Oregon voted to remove racial slurs with measure 14, but kept measure 68, which protects prison labor from competition, and measure 17, which requires inmates to work 40 hours a week. Removing harmful language from official documents, but keeping the exploitation is hypocrisy at its finest. If you believe that law enforcement will be able to maintain an objective mindset when screening firearm applicants, then you've purposefully ignored black history. It doesn't matter if a black man is a state representative, he will still get racially profiled by cops in the state of Oregon. Just ask representative Travis Nelson, who's been pulled over twice in three days. When I hear Oregonians say, why can't we go back to the way things were? I know they're referring to sundown laws and lynch parties being widely encouraged. Keeping the peace does not assure the safety of queer people of color. So be ready to educate yourselves and practice transformative accountability. When you hear accountability, do you imagine being browbeaten by a paternal figure or a crowd of people because you vocalized your truth and it felt like your reality was being shattered to pieces from the feeling of guilt? That's because we live in a society that demonizes and oversimplifies abuse. So that accountability casts people out, not in. Everyone is capable of perpetuating abuse from microaggressions to full-on extreme violence. Therefore, we must unlearn that and center healing as an integral part of accountability. The book Beyond Survival covers so much about transformative justice and not once was Karl Marx mentioned. Instead, the focus is being able to hold each other accountable without abusing each other, whether that's browbeating, being condescending, or full-on physical harm. This process will aid in the manifestation of community consciousness. So please keep donating to my website. And I now have a Patreon up and running, though I do not have outlined membership tiers as of yet. I just want to keep that up to the listeners to Keep supporting my content. And as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe.